electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, GE having its best day in three years after the former Dow stock announced a major restructuring. So what are the sum of the parts really worth? There's only one way to find out. We've got a special Fast Money game. Plus, the man we call Wall Street's king, Crypto, is back. And he says there is one thing that could save the crypto universe, and it's not what you think. He will be here to explain this controversial call. But first, we start off with the big story of the day, the midday oil surge. President Trump sparking a crude rally after the U.S. says it will push for allies to cut oil imports from Iran to zero. Oil soaring above 70 bucks a barrel and WTI, its highest level in a month. And this is energy is on track to be the best performing sector this quarter. So... Is rising energy prices good or bad for the rally? Is it too late to catch this hot trade? Guy. Well, I think it's bad in the context of what you just said before we started, the fact that President Trump is now ratcheting up the rhetoric and crude is rallying on that. But as Tim has been spot on with, the last two years crude's been rallying, and probably for the right reasons, because economies are getting better globally. So in a vacuum, it's a bad thing. But I think in, in the aggregate, I think it's a very good thing. Shows to healthy economies. And levered energy plays, quite frankly, continue to work. I mean, Anadarko Petroleum was a power pitch a few months ago by Tim. Things been on fire. And if you look at it, there's still a lot of runway for these names. Fast so, pitch guy, fast. I appreciate the credit. But, but I mean, it was you know, a fast pitch. Gotta, gotta get it right. You'll, fast you'll get pitch, power right. pitch, We're whatever waiting. it is. And in my, anyway. Trump rhetoric bad. Overall, I think it's very good. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we just got through the OPEC meeting in Vienna. You, you, there was a lot of confusion, even though I think ultimately what they ended up doing by doing a million barrel increase, which is theoretically probably 600,000 barrels uh, back on market, um, is, you know, some should have seen that as a negative event. In fact, it was really very much the opposite. You, OPEC, I think, and non-OPEC are very much, I think, working together, and I think the outcome has been supply discipline. I think we continue to get supply discipline. Meanwhile, if you're an investor in energy stocks, especially E&P names, the, the discipline in terms of CapEx is, is fantastic. In fact, the equities are now outperforming the underlying. So APC is certainly one of them. The Nat gas space has also been on fire, but I think you stay in the mid to upstream, and I love MLPs, as I think you know, and I think that space does very well with a consistently higher oil price. Where do you find value in oil, Karen? Um, well, I, I don't find value in oil right now between Friday and today's move. So Guy talked about it being a spiky kind of move. And we haven't seen yet, or I haven't seen, what response the other countries will have to Trump's policy and, and whether they'll go along with that. Let's say they, they, they don't. I think we'll see oil come back in, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I wouldn't be chasing oil right here. I don't have a ton of exposure to the space, which I think is also part of maybe what's making it go up. You talked about underexposure to the energy yeah. space for a long time. But do you think in the absence of Trump's proclamation today that, that actually oil prices should be going lower? No, I don't. I, I mean, maybe 3 or $4. Just what we've seen since Friday is a pretty big okay. move. Right. 
Absolutely. Right. That, I agree. The economy's doing well. well I, I think higher. that's the point, right? Is that there, I, I don't see how a 3% move on some, geo, let's call it geopolitical, uh, without an increase in demand is good for the economy, is good for the market. That being said, what we have seen is these type of extreme statements get ratcheted back. Maybe somebody in the EU comes out, says, hey, we're not following it. But there has been this underlying theme that oil has been doing better. Tim's been on it for two years since oil was at 30 bucks, right? Remember that. So if oil is going up because the economy is getting better, and I'm one who's mm -hmm. long oil at this point in time, if the oil's going up because the economy is getting better, great for the rally. If we continue to spike on this, hey, let's, let's cut down on, uh, let's not buy this oil with no increase in demand, then it's not good but at I, all for the world. I, I, I just think it's interesting that we, we are rallying on supply disruption news when two years ago or a year and a half ago, we had all the supply disruption news you could ever want, and the market wasn't doing anything. I would also point out that retail has outperformed the S&P over the last three months when oil has gone through this period. So right now the consumer, I, I don't think, and, cares. And on the flip side, we got the warning from Carnival, which saw a rise in all sorts of costs, including fuel, just yesterday. Yep. And, and what do we see in the airlines today? We saw the airlines go to session highs. That spike in oil happened, and then airlines closed pretty much at the session lows. So you have to ask yourself, in terms of the cruise lines, is, is it now within, and we talked about it last night, a name like Royal Caribbean, which is down from 135 to 105 over the course of a month and a half, two months, is now that priced in. I mean, valuations in a lot of these names are becoming reasonable. The airlines have made sense on valuation for quite some time. It's probably not the best reason to own them, but devoid of any other reason, I think it's good enough. You're in airlines. How I'm much? Is airline. if, if oil stayed right here, if that'd oil be a stayed right here because it grew into this, let's say, then I think that's okay. I mean, profitability, of course, will be hurt somewhat, but then I think maybe they'll also be able to have some pricing, right? Some, right some pricing power. Were airlines, though, rewarded on the way down? I mean, how, where was this $9 billion windfall, which people talked about for, for, for the big three, um, priced into their valuations? So I think there's, look, there are airlines analysts out there, and we talk to them all the time on this show, that actually think that higher oil prices give airlines pricing power. And that actually gives them the ability to pass on higher costs to the consumer. And that's something that these airlines have been telling us they want to do in the second half of this year. I think they're going to do it. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we better, we should find out. Again, that goes back to, you know, we, we started this year with this global synchronized growth. Now the U.S. is really the only place that is the kind of the growth engine at this play, point. And we saw people running into the U.S. equities, running into uh, idiosyncratic growth in triple Qs, in Russell, and that type of thing. So as long as we continue to have this growth, we're fine and we can increase prices. If you can't in increase prices because there is an additional demand, then we have a problem. And well, that's that what we'll have to see over the next three months or so. I mean, that was the United problem for the airlines at the beginning of the year. If, if they rein that in somewhat, and we've seen a, maybe a little bit of discipline, I agree with you. We'll see, we'll see some price power, which would be good for, very good. I, I just think airlines, look, we're talking about a, a growing economy. Airlines are priced for a recessionary economy. 10, 11 times for these guys, to me, is not representative of an economy that's going to do 3.5% GDP. I, I think airlines um, have been beaten up, but I still think sentiment is very low. All right, here's a question. Mm. Okay. A broader macro it's question. A game. Sounds like a game. Macro no, question. It's a game. No, it's Come a game. on, it's always a game. Why can't I just ask Buy a question it. on this show? Hold it. The question being, <laughs> if we see oil prices stay at these levels or move higher, we also have the Fed raising interest rates. We also have potential tariffs coming down on a bunch of products. What happens, and what does the Fed do? Fed raising interest rates should imply a stronger dollar, which should put a, you would think, would put some of a ceiling you on oil, but, but, but it, it hasn't really happened. Yeah. So what should it do? 
I think the Fed is the, and we've talked about this, I think that's what you should be concerned about. That being the exogenous event that could take down this market is to me a Federal Reserve that doesn't really care, in my opinion, what the market so you does. The, the, Fed, Fed, oh, go ahead. the Fed is in a box, basically, to raise rates no matter and what. And they should be, by if the way. I don't think they're doing anything wrong. Shop. They shouldn't be focused on the market. If the market goes down on the back of the Fed, so be it. We're eight years into this thing. We're not supposed You're to have accommodated they, they should or policy. should not. They should continue the course they're We're on and be, even be more aggressive, I just want to make sure. Opinion. I agree. I agree. I, they, I, the market is not, should not be one of the biggest factors at all. What are they going to do? Time the market? I mean, that, that's not a policy. To time no, the and, market, and, getting out of this eight-year, ten-year experiment. But the market experiment. is a reflection of the concerns, uh, you know, in terms of the confluence of tariffs, the confluence of oil and oil price spike, right? But it all goes. I don't think why these things are moving and why the Fed is moving, right? So if the Fed is raising rates because the economy is great, have at it, knock yourself out, keep raising them. But if the economy is, let's call it, stagnating, and we have higher oil prices, and we have a trade war, and we have margin compressing, then you know what? That's going to be a problem. We got to look though in context. They're raising rates from from here, right? I mean, if they can't even get off, you know, raise rates from this level. Look, I think they got to stick with the plan. The Fed is going to raise rates if they see inflationary pressures, folks. And, and I know that you, you strip out food and energy from your calculation of PCE. But but every again, I, I harp on these regional Fed surveys because everyone we've seen have shown enormous price pressures, especially in core commodities. So if anything, I, I know the Fed maybe not. They're only paying, paying attention to wage inflation. But I tell you what, I think there is price inflation and that'll push the Fed even faster than people think. Well, our next guest says the energy rally is just the beginning. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verona, Strategas Research Partners, to find out why. Hey, Chris, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, we brought along crude with us to start here. And what I think is really notable is the last month uh, of price action. Over 20 days, oil goes 73 to 63. And then in a matter of about a week, it makes it all up. That is bull market price action. And when you think about this in context of the last two years, we're showing you here the three-month low line. So the lowest price crude has made over the last three months. We haven't even hit this line. So crude hasn't made a three-month low in more than a year. That is characteristic of an uptrend, uh, not a downtrend. And when we think about some of the stocks here, this is the XLE going back the last 10 years. XLE peaked relative to the S&P almost 10 years ago to the day in June of 2008, underperforms by 65 over the last 10 years, that's about as bad as you get when you look historically at some of the worst sector declines. So we think the worst days for the energy stock are behind them uh, at this point. And then in the very near term, if we look at the XLE, higher low, higher low, higher low, right on the verge of breaking out back above 78. We think ultimately this goes to 85. I would echo the view that EMP is how you want to play this. We brought along two names. This is EOG really right on the verge of coming out of this very big base, and it's outperforming the sector. So we have a leader, a very good chart. We think it acts well here. And then lastly, this is Oxy, another name right on the verge of coming out of this very big base. You get this one above 80, you're looking at $100 stock. So we think crude up. We think E&P is how you play it. Chris comes over. Again, a statement, not a question. And ultimately, can we do anything about it, guys? No, I mean, you guys should vote no, and I'll just ignore you. 
<laughs> All right, and it's Chris. a good thing. Good, good to see you. So you brought up the chart of the XLE, but then you said the way to play it are the E&P names. So sure. I presume that the XOP as a chart versus the XLE looks much better. Exactly. And when you look at the XLE, you have to remember what the weights are. And you have a lot of big names that really haven't participated in that XLE. When you start to go to the XLP, that's when you're getting EOG, Marathon, Oxy. That, I think, is where the alpha is found in this group. It's been true the last six months. We think it's true the next six months. So, Chris, looking at some of those, it yeah. implies you're saying higher oil prices. Mm -hmm. I look at the chart, I see 80 bucks maybe as resistance, and then 90. Is that what you're thinking on price of oil? 82, 83 has been our target here. I think what's notable in our client meetings, how few people think it's going there. I, I don't even think most people realize that we're back to 71, 72 crude here. So, I think sentiment is on our side here. Brent already back to 76, 77 right now. So, the trend here is up. I love how it digested the news from last weekend, right? That could have been portrayed as bearish news for crude. Two days, boom, right back at the highs. That's how bull market instruments act. What has been the relationship of light between crude and the U.S. dollar? Weak. And historically, frankly, it's been weak, too. There are periods where it matters. I would be hesitant drawing too many big conclusions about U.S. dollar strength uh, and crude not going up. I would be very that skeptical of that. That's out the window for at least this A lot of things period. we hear in this business when you backtest them really aren't true. That's one of them. Well, if you think about what the dollar's done, so the dollar's had about a 6% rally off the floor. Um, during that time, we've yeah. gotten a big move in crude. I, I think you have seen the dollar because, again, oil. why did this happen? Because oil prices are priced in dollars typically. It's why a lot of the producers around the world want to see oil priced in even Chinese yuan while they open their futures market. But, but bottom line here is I totally agree that the E&P names are the ones that are most levered to oil prices. Look at the Permian basket, too. Look at, look at like a Diamondback ticker, FANG, which is an mm. interesting mm -hmm. ticker guy. Um, ultimately, you know, I think those are the ones that make a lot of sense here. I think those are the ones that are totally levered to this move right now. Chris, have you looked at the oil field services relative to these and how do they compare? Yeah, you know, listen, I think if we look at a Halliburton or a Schlumberger, they're probably washed out enough to take a shot uh, on the long side. I'm not convinced they're going to emerge as the leaders in the group. So if we're playing for absolute numbers and we're looking for a shot for something that's washed out, not a bad spot to poke around, but probably not your leaders yet. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone. Guy, what's your favorite pick in the energy sector? Halliburton. I think that if you look at valuation, look at where it stopped on the downside and look at where it could rally, I think Halliburton's very interesting. But we mentioned at the top, I'll say it again, Anadarko Petroleum, as levered a play as there is, in my opinion, still has room, despite the fact that it's had a tremendous run, still has room to the upside. All right, coming up, breaking up is hard to do, but maybe not for GE. The stock is soaring after announcing it's shedding some of its biggest businesses. So what's the right price for GE? Well, a lot higher, according to one of our traders. Plus, Trump goes hog wild. The president's sounding off against Harley Davidson. So is the company really the first trade war victim or is there something else irking the motorcycle maker? We've got the details. And later, Wall Street's king of crypto is back and he says there is one thing the crypto universe is missing that could bring back the Bitcoin boom. He'll explain what that is. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert out of the Trump administration. Let's get to Kayla Tausch in D.C. with the details. Kayla. Hey, Melissa. The National Economic Council director, Larry Kudlow, is looking to restock the White House economic team amid its turnover. This is according to three people familiar with the matter. Among the people Kudlow is considering for key roles, Dan Clifton of Strategus Research Partners and Stephen Moore, the conservative economist and Kudlow's close friend. Clifton has been floated as a potential deputy director or chief of staff, and he's said to be one of a handful of candidates being considered, including other senior agency officials and at least one current NEC staffer. 
Moore's name has been mentioned for a bespoke senior advisory role. According to Art Laffer, a close friend of both Moore's and Kudlow's, he's someone who is in step with Kudlow and could ably fill his shoes when he is away. Clifton and Moore declined to comment. Kudlow, who is a former CNBC contributor, did not respond to requests for comment. Roughly a quarter of the NEC's 24 jobs are open, including senior roles leading infrastructure and agricultural policy. The deputy role will vacate in the coming weeks with the departure of Shahira Knight. She's set to take a senior role at a financial trade association here in Washington, but may remain at the White House to run its legislative affairs arm. The White House, for its part, said it would not comment on who Larry has spoken to, only that he's interviewed several candidates both internally and externally for the positions. Melissa? All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche, and of course, all of those names should be very familiar to CNBC viewers. They are regulars, and we should note that yep. many of them are very close friends, as Kayla had mentioned, with Larry Kudlow. They penned a number of op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, together. So I, yeah, I think it's more no, all same, these guys, probably a I, good thing. I, I think it is. I mean, I think these are these are very enlightened, kind of big-picture minds that I think are, are you know, they, they may fit the, the posture of this administration, but frankly, I think these are folks that really are thinking about the big picture, especially Especially as it relates to foreign trade. I think it's great. Yeah, very free trade oriented, though. But I'm wondering if that free trade, is that the policy? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> uh, it appears not at the moment. Ultimately, maybe we'll see something very different. I assume that we will. But at the moment, it feels like the less free traders. It feels like when Larry, when Kudlow had a heart attack and he was sort yeah. of sidelined for a, a time, right. that Navarro and Lighthizer really gained some um, say and sway within the administration. So. I, I yeah. sense a conspiracy theorist in you just. No, I'm out. not. That, that's the end that, of my there's thought. There's no conspiracy. Yeah. He just said it. That is true. That, well, those I think that's happened. true, though. I mean, I think Whether it does appear right. that the trade rhetoric has been has been uh, amped up over the last yeah. couple of weeks, right? So, you know, you get people in there that are more free traders. To me, I think that's better for the world. Market friendly. <laughs> Market Why are you friendly. laughing? Yeah, no, I'm exactly. just laughing. At my, I'm just thinking. I mean, maybe I have the you know the former Soviet Union in my head and people doing nefarious things to other. It's, Move on. Why are you taking down the yeah, phone? I don't know. Oh, right. Right. Let's stick with DC and the huh. trade wars here. Yeah. Shares of Harley Davidson suffering their fourth day of losses as President Trump goes hog wild, threatens the company with new taxes. Let's get out to Phil LeBeau in Chicago for the latest on this. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. It wasn't just the tweets this morning where the president, not just once, not twice, but three times, went after Harley Davidson with pretty pointed attacks. He then went back at them in the afternoon when cameras were allowed into a cabinet meeting. Here's what he had to say about Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson is using that as an excuse. And I don't like that because I've been very good to Harley Davidson and they used it as an excuse. And I think the people that ride Harleys are not happy with Harley Davidson. And I wouldn't be either. What does Harley Davidson think about being called out again by the president. We reached out to the company today. We heard nothing back. And as far as I can tell, Melissa, I have not seen any response from Harley Davidson either to the president's tweets this morning or to the comments tonight at the White House. It brings up the question, if the president goes against your company, could it hurt business? Could people say, yeah, you know what? I agree with the president. I don't like Harley Davidson. Well, take a look at what's at stake for Harley Davidson in the U.S. It has roughly half of the market when it comes to motorcycles in the United States, its Q1 sales were down 12%. That may be not necessarily an indication of Harley-Davidson struggling as much as it is. There's soft demand right now when it comes to motorcycles in the United States. So as you take a look at shares of Harley-Davidson, I know a lot of people will be saying, well, will they ultimately say something? Will they respond because they're getting beaten up? There's really two ways to handle this if you're a CEO, Melissa, as far as I can tell, because I cover so many companies that have been attacked by President Trump. 
You either go to the White House or go to the president and you have a conversation and ultimately make a deal. We saw that with Boeing. Remember the Air Force One project? Now they get along swimmingly. Or you really don't say anything, which is what we've seen from General Motors, Toyota, the German automakers. You just kind of sit there and you take it and you don't respond the way that you might ordinarily if somebody attacks you on social media. And those are really the two ways we've seen companies handle the president's when he's attacked in the past. Yep. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau you in Chicago. And then you also have to ask, if the president says don't buy a Harley-Davidson, <laughs> Our customers going to not buy a Harley Davidson. We've seen boycotts. Yes, 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 yes and no. Yes. Though. Well, there's yeah. going to okay. be a yes whole no. other faction of go. You know what? I support Harley Davidson. I'm going to go out and buy a Harley. Right? I mean, we've seen that with many things. Yeah. I think when uh, um, Delta Airlines or a couple of the airlines, not most recently, but a, um, I do think, a few months back. I think President Trump's point, though, that a lot of Harley buyers are, are tend to be his Trump base, supporters. His base, um, and by yeah. the way, Harley's issues are secular, not cyclical. I mean, they're, they're having a tough time. They've been having a tough time for a long time. As Phil pointed out, 12% down year over year. Um, U.S. sales uh, down 12%, worldwide down 7%. This is not a trade war stock. This is just a stock in decline. Stock yeah. is only down 0.6% today, today on the today. back of yeah. Trump's right today. On the back of Trump's sort of yeah. amped up rhetoric, and, and you know Trump. maybe this will put a. Yeah, you rode a Harley in college, right? Of course I did. Yeah. I had a little sidecar uh, that you used to want to get in all the time, and I said, "Get away from that." See that? You got to be careful. You're very well done by you. With that said, I'm with Tim. We said it last night. It's a stock. It's a company that's in secular decline for the last five years, right? I mean, comps. Phil just said it. Down 12 percent in the U.S. That's really bad. But I'm telling you another thing. You're two or three days away from some YouTube video of a guy torching his Harley in his front lawn. And then you think that brings the stock down? That, to me, might be the bottom for the stock. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. you get into a place now where you look at it and maybe valuation starting to make sense. Last quarter, gross margins hung in there. Maybe you could start to see it. Sell the tweet by the torch. Listen, you know, <laughs> if they do, like, I like yeah, what you yeah. just did that. I yeah, didn't miss it. Sell the torch, the sidecar. But, but also, the side to that car. point, we have seen time, and this is everything, time and time again, you have these big sweeping statements, and they're walked back a bit. So you look at Harley, already beaten up. 40 bucks appears to be support. To me, I think it's great risk-reward to try to play that. Listen, this is going to be walked back a bit. For more on what the Trump trade policy means for investors in the markets, head on over to CNBC.com for more coverage. Still ahead, GE soaring today after what looks like the start of a breakup. So what's the stock worth now? We've got an unusual way to value the stock, and Tim will break it down. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. In the battle for your money, big established stocks are getting crushed by upstart rivals. It's the story of the market no one is talking about. And we'll tell you how to cash in. Baby, come back. That's what a top crypto trader is hoping retail traders will do when it comes to Bitcoin. But it's not the retail buyer you normally think of. He'll be here to explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. A top Silicon Valley firm is doubling down on its crypto bet, and that's got the space hoping for renewed faith among cryptocurrency investors. Seema Modi's at the crypto desk at headquarters with the details. Hi, Seema. Hey, Melissa. Top venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz launching its first ever crypto-dedicated fund, and it's a big raise, $300 million that will be used to invest in virtual currencies like Bitcoin and Ether, as well as blockchain-related projects. The fund will be co-led by former DOJ prosecutor Catherine Huan and Andreessen 
Jason Horowitz general partner Chris Dixon. The launch comes as Bitcoin has lost 52% of its value in 2018. Dixon telling CNBC that the firm is not worried about the recent ups and downs in the cryptocurrency market and that some of the downturns can be the best investments. Furthermore, Dixon says although the Bitcoin white paper is now almost 10 years old, we believe we are still early in the crypto movement. The infrastructure needs to be improved and the applications are difficult for non-early adopters to use. Many crypto applications still get dismissed as toys. We believe this will change quickly. Upbeat comments that certainly may carry weight. After all, Andreessen did make early investments in Instagram and Airbnb and to date has raised over $7 billion across seven funds. Also worth noting, Andreessen was one of the first firms in Silicon Valley to put money to work in cryptocurrencies back in 2013 when it invested in Coinbase. However, Bitcoin not catching a break today, down about 1%, 61.80. Melissa, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi at the crypto desk. Uh, Brian Kelly, you know, Catherine Hahn, I mean, what is striking about her background mm-hmm. is her DOJ right. experience. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, she's been, you know, at the forefront of this as, as well as Andreessen Horowitz. They've been in it early. And so what's interesting about this, we've talked about, and I, I've even talked about this wave of institutional money coming. Well, here it is first wave right here. And the great thing about it is they're going to hold these cr- cryptocurrencies for you know five, ten years, what they're talking about. This isn't necessarily a trading fund. So this is a lot of support for the market. Yeah. And uh, I think it's two and a half billion dollars that uh, VCs have invested in in cryptocurrencies and blockchain sort of ventures over the past few years. Um, yeah. This could really build the space out. Well, and I think that's you know, that's really what we hear from the VC community more than anything. I, I think they're investing, they're investing in, in tokens, but they're investing alongside. And I think the platforms themselves mm-hmm. are really where people are excited. And that's where these guys are getting their credibility for really digging deeper. All right. Well, many believe the emergence of institutional players will drive crypto. Our next guest says, says there's an even bigger catalyst on the horizon that could bring about a crypto comeback. You at home. Bart Smith is the head of digital assets at Susquehanna, but he here is known as Wall Street's Crypto King. <laughs> Hope you like your nickname. <laughs> great, so. great to have you back. Um, so retail investors in the form of what and what sort of comeback do you think uh, they're going to make? Well, so the narrative has been about this institutional wall of money. And in Treason Horowitz, it, it's, it's $300 million. It's a great story. But they're, they're venture capitalists. Like they're fintech venture capitalists at that. And so I don't feel like that's a tremendous departure from what they've done if it was a a big asset manager or like a, a brand name uh, hedge fund that probably would have more catalysts in the space. Um, and when you talk to those folks, you don't really get that first mover sense of urgency. Uh, I think an area of the marketplace that hasn't been touched upon as much is Secretary Hintmer, um, uh, Hinman from the SEC two weeks ago when he talked about uh, the Ether no longer being a security and kind of stating why, it, it left out that, well, a lot of these other tokens don't meet those criteria. So are they going to be securities? And if so, are they going to need to be on broker-dealers? And so that, that's an interesting uh, part of the market. And, and frankly, where you have seen demand is from retail people in the U.S., Coinbase, Gemini, Circle. All of, those, uh, all of those people are servicing retail investors. So we're thinking, I mean, when we think about retail investors, we're thinking about the guy at home. And it may include the guy at home. But we're also talking about sort of high net worth individuals who may be going through their RIAs, so they have more capital uh, to expend. Why do you think they are now going to get in? Are they the same people who are in at the height or are these different people? Well, there's, you know, there's over 600,000 registered reps in the United States, and the vast majority of them are not able to advise their their, their clients to buy Bitcoin. 
And so as the regulatory clarity kind of opens up and, and all of a sudden you're seeing, you know what, that there's an opportunity for uh, some of the firms out there. So at the bottom end of the spectrum, you have kind of the, the disruptor, right, like the Robin Hood, who now offers to their 4 million, mostly millennial customers, Ether and Bitcoin. And then at the, kind of the top of the food chain, you know, you have uh, Abigail at, at, um, Fidelity. at Fidelity, and they're building out, you know, a, a, a crypto platform there. And so in between, you have all these other players who, where there is a, a real kind of sense of urgency for an, an asset grab. So, Bart, we're sitting here in the U.S., we get very focused on the U.S., but crypto is a global asset. More than 50% of the volume traded is in Asia. I'm starting to see a lot of Asian family offices, high net worth investors come in and buy this market. Is that more of a catalyst, perhaps, than the, the U.S. retail investor? It is. Or, I mean, in general, you see, you've seen this in the past where the RA market has led institutional, right? And that's what happened in the ETF world. In, in the early stages of, of, of ETFs kind of coming to market in the early 2000s, you know, institutions called them a fad and dangerous, you know, that they were inefficient. And so and what, what the RIA marketplace did is they took these, these tools and used them to build por- portfolios. And as they gathered assets and they started doing institutional-sized trades, that ended up being kind of the case study for larger institutions like pensions and endowments, insurance companies using ETFs. Yeah. I think in this space you could see the same thing, where you see large pools of retail non-institutional assets, but... Family offices kind of act like small institutions. And so I think that might be a proving ground where you see, once again, kind of the lower end of institutional leading larger. In terms of institutional demand, what have you seen? What did you see as Bitcoin tested its year's lows? So, again, I think that the the institutional world is looking at this, but there doesn't feel like there's this, I got to move now, right? If you look at most of the people who manage hedge funds, in the crypto space, for the most part, they're not people like you. They're not, they're not capital markets people. They're engineers, they're computer scientists, they don't, haven't really managed people's assets before. And I think that they feel like in, in, the, in the hedge fund world and the big asset management world, I can move, I could grab one of these funds and, or I could launch my own and I would have a very competitive advantage given the fact that I already have institutional customers. Mm-hmm. The smaller hedge funds who are in the space, they don't, they don't have those institutional customers to call on. All right, Mark, great to have you with us. Thank you. Crypto King. Yes. Of Wall Street. Yeah. The crypto King. I mean, look at I mean, what have king you seen in terms of your uh, interest? So it's, it's interesting. So I brought investors. up I brought up the, the Asia part of it because we do get focused here on the U.S. And what we have seen is a lot of demand coming out of Asia. And, you know, the, the feeling is, is that, listen, this is an asset class that's not going away. It's something that we want to have some portion of allocation to it. And, you know, the institutional demand is probably the family office high net worth. Um, I agree with Bart, though. You know, if we can get retail money and, you know, Fidelity coming on board would be massive for the space. And that's going to come. Beaky, let me ask you, what comes first, the chicken or egg being the the investor themselves saying to their RIA, I need this allocation? Or the other way around? I would guess that you get somebody, let's, let's say Fidelity, choose them as an example. You get them, there's tremendous demand uh, for the Fidelity product uh, buying Bitcoin. Then the RIAs come in and say, okay, we've got to go and do this. Still ahead, General Electric having its best day in three years. The stock surging after it announces a plan to shrink its business. Is the worst over for this beaten down former Dow stock? And what is it really worth now? We've got an unusual way of breaking it down. Plus, it's just like the classic showdown, David versus Goliath. There are a number of underdog stocks locked in battles with some of the biggest companies in the market. And the small guy is winning. We'll tell you the surprising names when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. General Electric used to bring good things to life, and today it did just that. GE posting its best day in three years as the company announces more details about its restructuring plan. Our Morgan Brennan's at the New York Stock Exchange with that story. Hi, Morgan. Thanks, Melissa. Well, spin off the healthcare business, exit Baker Hughes, de-risk GE Capital, cut corporate's footprint. This is all part of the long-term strategy unveiled by CEO and Chairman John Flannery today to turn around the struggling industrial company. Every sense, the the pain, if you will. Uh, you know, my my life savings is in the stock, so I, I have the same sort of connection to the issue. The second thing I'd say is we've gone through a tough patch. We've faced into the issues. We're dealing with the issues. We have a plan. We know where we are. We're realistic about that. We know exactly where we want to go with the portfolio, with the balance sheet, with how we run the company, and we know exactly how to get there. And stay tuned for the ride here. And how he plans to get there, healthcare becomes standalone. That's a process that'll take 12 to 18 months. Going to exit Baker Hughes over the next two to three years. Remember, GE merged its oil and gas unit with BH last year. Similar deal underway at transportation with Wabtec right now as well. The result, a quote, simpler, stronger GE, one that is focused on aviation, power, renewable energy, which Flannery's betting will unlock value for those growth areas like healthcare, but also help shore up the balance sheet. Investors have been looking for this for months. This is the reason shares spiked today and ended the day up almost 8%. But I'd also caution, it's all going to take time. You've got many details that are still unknown, particularly around GE Capital. Also, the future of the dividend. GE says they will maintain it at the current level for now. But Melissa, once healthcare is standalone, those payouts are going to be reassessed according to the company. Back over to you. All right. Thank you, Morgan Brennan at the NYSE. Well, with all of today's action in General Electric, we thought this was the perfect time to play. The price is right. One of our traders will come on down to the plasma and tell us where they think General Electric should really be trading. When they're done, the other traders will vote on whether or not they think the price is right. So let's get to it, announcer. Who is the next contestant? Tim Seymour oh, from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Come on down. <laughs> Oh, oh, I'm so All excited right. now. Welcome, Tim, to The Price is Right. It's the greatest day of my life. I, I don't know what to say. It's... How much should GE be worth? Oh, well, that, maybe it's not the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I tell you what. So here's, here's how I'd like to do this. Now, I think GE is worth $17. And here's, here's how I get to this number. Ultimately, let me give you a quick pie chart of what I think their core businesses are. Basically, as we said, half of this is aviation. The other half is, half of that is health care. Um, ultimately, you then have some power, you have some transport, and you have Baker Hughes. And ultimately, if I do the sum of the parts here, folks, I end up with, you know, roughly 145 billion, excuse me, 195 billion in the enterprise value of all these things together. And again, aviation is 90 billion right there. So that's a real business. And Baker Hughes, which they own 65% of right away, that's 25 billion. So that's 25 billion there. That's part of this 195 number. Then I subtract out 50 billion for the debt of the company. So if I'm adding up enter enterprise value, I have to subtract out the debt. And I'm left with 145 billion in market cap with 8.7 billion shares. And I divide the two. And then I get $17 a share. And again, those numbers come from looking at each business separately. And for example, the aviation business is roughly a 13 times multiple, where the power business is roughly an eight times multiple. They're not all the same business. They're not all computed the same way. That, to me, is very conservative, by the way. I, I, if anything, I don't want to overdo it. I want to underdo it. I think the stock's cheap here. 
Okay, traders, I hope you're paying attention to that fancy math. Tim says GE should be trading at around 17 bucks a share. That's what I'm saying. All right, so higher or lower is price is Tim's price right? Karen, why don't you kick it off with your... All right, assuming it's all, it's all done and the whole thing, the whole plan has been enacted, I'm going to reluctantly... 16. Uh, lower. 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 Okay. All right, should we review the rules of the game? <laughs> 17 is the base. You go higher or you go lower. All right, let's try Thanks, this Bill. again. Brian Kelly, what do you say? Uh, you know, I mean, Tim made a compelling case. I, I guess there's, to me, many, many assumptions in there that I'm not sure I can get a handle on. So I'll go with lower. Lower. Two yeah. lowers. I, I don't, you know, I don't think you can do the math. All right? so, <laughs> I was told there'd be no math on this test. <laughs> so I'm not sure what. You know. The last uh, person over there on the desk, a guy. Yes. Get thank God for your name tag there. Come on, guy. Uh, where what do you say? Higher or lower? I remember who I am. I would say lower, Monty. Listen, Tim makes a cogent argument, but Monty. we've seen stocks that are being takeover, you know, in takeover talks that traded at discount to the takeover price. And I think the reasons why are risk arbitrage a lot of times. Market doesn't believe it. In my opinion, the market doesn't believe it should be worth 17, some of the parts. Still too opaque. So low, yeah. yeah I said well, it yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'll yeah. take the other side of that trade. And if anything, again, we're talking some of the parts right now and businesses as they stand. Hmm. There's no question about that to me. And ultimately, I think the market will pay a higher premium in a year or two. That's why I think it's worth owning at this level. All right. Well, Tim from uh, the Upper West Side, thank you. Yeah, for it's, so, it's so excited here to be here. Thank you, right. folks at home. Hi, Mom. That does it for us here on The Price is Right. Don't forget to get your pet spayed or neutered. What? <laughs> 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 I'm yeah, to Bob Barker. Come on, guys. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't you Very responsible thing to do. Game shows? All right. Now it's time for you at home to weigh in. Did Tim get the price right for GE or should it be higher or lower? Head over to our Twitter poll. Vote at CNBC Fast Money right now. We'll have the results later in the show. Plus, some of the market underdogs are taking on the top dogs and winning. But do the traders think this unlikely trend will continue? We've got the details. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a market flash on WWE. It's soaring after hours. Let's get to Contessa Brewer in the newsroom with the details. Contessa. Melissa, do you know who Roman Reigns is? Um, no. You're about to. Because wow. there is a big, <laughs> big deal happening. They have signed, WWE has, e has signed a new deal that is going to bring SmackDown to broadcast Fox Network on Friday nights so that all of America can enjoy it, whether you've cut your cable cord or not. And in after hours trading now, this is up more than 5%, 5.6%. They had also announced that they are extending their deal with USA Network, which is, of course, owned by NBC Universal, Comcast. But the big news here is that it's going to broadcast TV. Roman Reign, is that what you said? Yeah. He also goes up against The Undertaker, by the way. Oh, yeah, I know him. And Ronda Rousey is with yes, them. Yes, yes, yes. I think she needs a special name now, like Ronda Rousinator or something like that. I'm just saying. And also, could you put those lights around me that you just had for the last? <laughs> Did so you like better. our name tags? We'll send you one. <laughs> um, Contessa Brewer, thank you. <laughs> WWE, anybody's like got a trailer? The Caretaker. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should have WWE up. name tags. Come w- up with w- I'll tell you what, there are nights on the show I want to take guy off the top turnbuckle. I can Do tell you that. Do we have a trade on WWE or no? The stock has been parabolic over Thank the last you, six months. Trades at a crazy valuation, but the shorts have been betting against it now for the last six months unsuccessfully. So until you see a day where it trades four or five times normal volume, which you have not seen, I think the stock continues to go higher from here. All right. Well, WWE isn't the only underdog taking on bigger rivals. Some say bigger is better, but that might not always be the case for the past year for some well-known brands. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hey, Bob. 
Hello, Melissa. The S&P 500 is up about 11 percent in the last 12 months, but there's plenty of so-called pair trades that have produced some really amazing returns. Now, a pair trade matches a long position with a short position in a pair of highly correlated stocks that are usually in the same sector. And it's true over the last year, smaller competitors have been beating out their larger rivals in several sectors. So take a look. Shake Shack versus McDonald's. Shake Shack has a market cap one fiftieth out of McDonald's. But it's been up 90 percent in the last year. McDonald's basically flat up just 5 percent. In retail, another example, Etsy has a market cap less than one one hundredth of Amazon. But Etsy's up 175 percent versus 70 percent for Amazon in the last year. Another one, Dunkin' Brands, is 8 percent the size of Starbucks. But it's still outperforming up 25 percent versus 16 percent for Starbucks. Square is less than one third the size of American Express. But it's been up a whopping 161 percent in the last year versus up 18 percent for American Express. Now, with this kind of outperformance, you might think the shorts have it out for the underperformers. That's not generally the case, or at least not with these pairs. McDonald's and Amazon are not heavily shorted stocks right now. American Express was heavily shorted several years ago, but really is not anymore. Only Starbucks has slowly seen its short interest increase in the last couple of years, but that's not really heavily shorted either. Only three days to cover for the short positions. They're not considered very excessive. Back to you, Melissa. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. So as these underdogs take on the reigning top dogs, it reminded me of the classic story of an underdog pulling off one of the biggest upsets mankind has ever witnessed. U.S. Olympic team. No, close. Okay. You're getting David, into Harvard. David. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. It gets old, does it? Little David defeating giant Goliath. Oh, that one. Yeah. With that in mind, we thought we would play a little game with these underdogs and top dogs. Which ones are the better bets? The Davids smaller companies or the Goliaths, their giant rivals, sort of a literal would you rather, if you uh -huh. will. So we're going to start with Tim, and you're going to look at Duncan versus Starbucks, Duncan being the underdog or the David, yeah. Starbucks the much larger top dog or the Goliath. One year out, which one? No question. It's, it's Goliath. Um, you know, you have a dynamic here where, first of all, David has outperformed by about 50% or so in the last three, probably since the peak of 2016 when Starbucks valuation probably hit its peak. Um, why would I want to get in this trade on the side of Duncan right now, especially when Duncan is starting to run into slower growth? I think that multiple in Duncan is not deserved, whereas I think in Starbucks, you know, Kevin Johnson earlier or last week gave a long chat where he didn't really have a chance to rationalize a lot of these U.S. Uh, comp numbers that really knock the stock down dramatically. So um, there's no reason to me you're selling Starbucks at these levels. I would be owning Starbucks over Duncan. Yes, I'm going to ask you a quick question because yes. this is a new game for us, yes. and I'm learning, as yes. you know. This is David versus Goliath. Why is the Incredible Hulk then on the – look at this. Pull, put that graphic up again. I thought it was – I mean, yeah. well, that's the craziest that's thing. That's, that's, that's the incredible thing. Hulk. That's the thing. like a transformer. I mean, who that's comes out? It's a, a creature from the Black watch. Lagoon. Yeah. Right. I mean, the crack staff in EC could have done a much, they should have gotten like a biblical David and Goliath type. I mean, I'm just saying that all the time to prepare. Do you have any Sorry. On I like Duncan better than Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks is up against it. I get the valuation story, but you know what? Valuation story might be rich given their growth. So I'd rather be Duncan right now a year out. Next pair goes to Karen. Yeah. Etsy's the underdog. David, Amazon's the top dog. Goliath, David or Goliath? I got to go with Goliath, actually. I mean, you know, mathematically, they're both very difficult to get behind on a valuation basis. 
But if you think about it, Goliath has so many more resources, plus is far more diversified, right? They have a lot of other businesses they're in as opposed to candles and whatnot. Not that I don't like Etsy. But I also think, all right, there was a freak, a freak accident and David won. Overall, though, Goliath, were they to fight 10 times? David Goliath, is winning battles. Right. Goliath wins the war. Exactly. Oh, I couldn't there agree you more. go. Wow. Couldn't agree more. Can't wait to see the David. All right. Next up is BK. Square is the David, and American Express is Goliath. David or Goliath? Well, for me, it's David, for sure. I mean, first of all, I'm long of Square. Oh, what was that? Wait, That's David. That? Is that a slingshot? Oh, it's a slingshot. Sorry, I got my biblical reference now. Well, anyway, let me let me explain why. very deep. Game. I did, I did not <laughs> expect a slingshot, just to be clear. Okay, go ahead. Are we ready now? Yes, Square, okay, please. Okay, so Square, <laughs> to me, is more nimble. They're actually solving a real problem. They're out there with small businesses solving a problem for them that I don't see that American Express doesn't, that they don't really solve that. So to me, if you're talking about payments, you're talking about where the growth is, a company like Square, that's where it's Can at. we get the slingshot again? Thank yeah. goodness we're on yeah. to our last pair. Slingshot. <laughs> Shake Shack. Shake Shack is David or mm. McDonald's the Goliath guy. What do you say? Shake Shack is David and Goliath is me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> slingshot. Well, there you go. I take the slingshot. And you didn't even have to say anything. For full disclosure, I worked at Shake Shack, I as know. you know. Yeah. And when I worked there, it was like a $30 stock. Look at it now. Now, people say valuation is ridiculous. It Wait, is ridiculous. That's how we got here. 50, valuation is Still going higher. Still ahead. This stock is soaring today, and traders are betting the run is just getting started. We'll tell you the name and the trade next. We're live from New York City's Times Square. Much more fast money right after this. Check out shares of home builder Lennar surging nearly 5% after reporting earnings before the bell today. The options market is implying even more gains ahead. Let's get to Mike Coe for more. Mike. Yeah, we saw about 16 times the average call volume this morning right after they reported earnings. And one of the bigger trades we saw was a purchase of the July 52 and a half, 55, one by two call spread. 5,000 by 10,000 times. They spent just 16 cents to do that. And that's a bet that it's going to go up towards that short strike of 55 by July expiration or three weeks from Friday. That's a good strategy also for the home gamers who have the stock and are looking to enhance their gains on a 5% move to the upside. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe in Los Angeles. More options action. Check out the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trade. Final trade time. Guy. You watch the presses, right? Guy's telling you, buy GE. Melissa. Uh, if I were Karen, I'd say Citibank. <laughs> Put a bottom tier, probably. That's what I'd say. Karen. No, no, she wouldn't. No, you can't see it. No, Karen wouldn't. But BK would tell you to buy XOP. Tim. Not enough time. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks for watching. We'll be back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.